Yeah, yeah, yeah. We know medical care requires informed consent, but laws require informed consent. Politics, entrepreneurship, how you engage with your diet, health, exercise, even relationships. These all require a place of being informed. And I am so sick of being called a conspiracy theorist for using my brain and being informed. So that's where this podcast came to life. This is Informed Consent. I'm your host, Brooke Brewer. Let's start talking. By this point in our vaccine conversation series, I'm genuinely curious if you listening really fully understood and knew that our children receive this many vaccinations by the time they are two months old, between what they receive on the day they're born and then on their second month checkup. And the craziest part, you guys, is we're not even through. We're not even through what children get on their second month checkups. We so far have covered the rotavirus, the Hib, the pneumococcal vaccines that are given on the second month checkup. Another vaccination that is given on the second month checkup is the polio vaccine. I am not going to do another episode series on the polio vaccine because we already did that on actually part two of this series. If you haven't had a chance to go and listen to that, I urge you to go back and listen to that episode to follow along with the series. But I just felt that I needed to put that episode second in the series because the most common argument, I should say, of the vaccinating community and of doctors and of very pro-vax people is polio. What about polio? What about polio? Polio, the vaccine saved us. And so I wanted to just hit that nail right on the head and rip off the bandaid on the polio situation. So go back and listen to part two of the vaccine conversation series. If you have not already to learn about another vaccine that is given to our children on their second month checkup. And this week I want to wrap up the conversation of the second month checkup vaccinations. And I am going to wrap it up with a very large bow and cover the DTAP, the DTAP vaccine. The DTAP vaccine is a cocktail vaccine. It's a three-in-one vaccine for the diphtheria, the tetanus, and pertussis. This vaccine is for three different bacterias and illnesses. And we are going to, as we always do in these vaccine conversation series, we are going to break up this vaccine. We're going to break up each disease or each illness that is in this cocktail vaccination and really, really just break down the questions that you may have and finish up the conversation of our two month checkup vaccinations that our children get. So the DTAP, the DTAP is the diphtheria tetanus and pertussis vaccination. It vaccinates for three different things. What I want to keep reiterating and what I want you to really fully understand is this vaccine cannot be separated. What do I mean by that? You cannot choose to get one vaccine for something that's in here. For example, if you want a tetanus vaccine, you can't just say, oh, I just, I want to opt out of the diphtheria and the acellular pertussis. I just want the tetanus. Unfortunately, you cannot do that. This is a three for one. You get them all or you get none of them, but they're going to encourage you to get all of them. And 
you are going to learn in today's episode and, and really see that one might be better than the other, but you don't have the choice to really say, you know what, I, I think I might just want the pertussis vaccine, or I might just want the diphtheria vaccine, but I, I, I really don't think, I really don't think I want the tetanus. I, I don't see the point. doesn't matter because you have to get them together. This is something very important to take note of. So I, I, I want to break down each disease or bacteria that is in this vaccination. Um, the first one is the D and the D tap that would be diphtheria. So diphtheria is, it's almost non-existent in the United States. Actually, it, it is just about been eliminated every so often one case pops up here, there in the year, but it is almost so rare, rare that some people, some medical professionals will actually say that this is eradicated or this is almost non-existent in the United States. Diphtheria is a severe coughing illness that is actually very similar to pertussis, which we're going to get into in a bit. But I think it's important to take note that currently there is, is no fatalities from this diphtheria in the United States, because again, it is pretty much very fortunately eradicated. There, there really isn't too much to cover on this, on this disease, because like I said, it is, is so uncommon, but I really want to point out something that I believe is, is of high significance. And that is the pre-vaccination numbers. So before this vaccination came out, what were the numbers? What were what was of such concern of this disease to make sure that we vaccinated our children for to protect them from diphtheria? So in around between 1936 and 1945, essentially pre-vaccine, this vaccine came out in about 1947. Um Somewhat introduced in 1945, but really kind of brought onto the market around 1947. And before this was brought to the market, there was a reported 21,053 cases. So of about 147 million people that were living in this time, 21,053 cases of diphtheria were studied and noted. What's even more interesting to me is that 1,822 deaths were reported from diphtheria before the vaccination. Now, of course, any death is horrible and, and no death is a good death, but I just want to bring in the statistics for a moment. 1,822 deaths of diphtheria before the vaccine was even introduced. And let's take that statistic and take that to the 147 million people that were living in this time. That is about 0.0013% of people would die from diphtheria. 0.0013%. That is near statistical zero. People were dying from diphtheria. And this was before the vaccine. So what is, what is there to fear from diphtheria? Diphtheria is a curable disease. 
it is something that is so minor that most people will recover from. Like I said, it's, it's very similar to pertussis. It's just a, a severe cough. And you will see that there's actually quite a bit of studies that will show why young infants actually do pose a risk of severe coughs like diphtheria and pertussis in specific, because they're so young that they have more, they have smaller windpipes. And so because of that, they don't have as much oxygen throughout flow and open air pathways for them to really take that big, big, deep breath, which can result in those severe coughs. But even with that being said, diphtheria has a 0.0013% death rate for diphtheria before the vaccine came out. Now, yes, the vaccine has supposedly, according to the CDC, essentially made diphtheria non-existent, or did it? There's a lot of doctors and there's a lot of people who really actually question the similarities between diphtheria and strep throat. Now we talked about this a couple of times on the show already, how it's just so easy for them to just change the name of things or to re-diagnose in a different disease. You know, we saw this with polio. We've seen this with so many other situations where it makes you pose the question, did this vaccine really make diphtheria non-existent or did we just come up with a new name for this disease like strep throat? Many doctors actually question this, not just crazy conspiracy theorists. I want you to think about that, but I really want to spend most of my time on tetanus and pertussis because I truly do feel like these two conversations are some of the most important and not even important, but the most asked, right? People think tetanus, getting tetanus and pertussis is a death sentence or is the worst thing in the world. And so I want to break down both of these. So let's go right into tetanus as we went to the D. Now we're in the T. Diphtheria, tetanus, acellular pertussis is what, again, DTAP stands for. So the tetanus, let's get into tetanus. So first it's important to note that tetanus, yes, is very severe, but the current numbers, even the past numbers are extremely tiny, just like diphtheria. It is so rare. In fact, one, about one baby a year and three to five teenagers a year, even catch tetanus. And they say about 30 cases of tetanus in adults. There is a 10% current fatality rate for tetanus. So of the, let's say total 40 people a year between babies and adults that get tetanus, 10% of them are going to die. So feel free to go ahead and do that math, but it is treatable. Tetanus is treatable and It's very important to go back to something that has been talked about so many times is the one word of sanitation. Tetanus was very, very common. I don't even want to say very, very common, but more prominent during World War I, during times where there was not clean water, there was not good sanitation practices, there wasn't good hand soaps and disinfecting sprays. 
And as time has evolved and as time has progressed, we have really grown our sanitation practices. So tetanus just in the sanitation practices alone is so much more safe. But don't you worry, the CDC is going to take claim of the tetanus numbers going down dramatically because the vaccine saved everybody from tetanus. But did it really? A little bit of a backtrack, I guess, on tetanus. I apologize. Tetanus is a bacterial infection. It can lead to serious symptoms. You know, it's definitely a very serious infection. If you do get tetanus, it can be very serious. You can tend to have jaw cramping, muscle cramps, muscle pain, muscle stiffness, body aches, fatigue, headaches, really just uncomfortable feeling. And this is a bacterial infection that tends to get in from your wound. So from cutting an open wound and it getting infected. Now there's a couple things about tetanus that I feel is important to talk about because I do feel there's so many myths about tetanus. So tetanus is an anaerobic bacteria. What does this mean? This means that it cannot survive in oxygenated environments. If you know anything about biology and how the body works, you should know that if a wound is able to bleed, it means that it's an oxygenated environment. And because tetanus is an anaerobic bacteria, it can't survive on oxygenated oxygenated environments. Therefore, if your wound bleeds, there is no tetanus. The second thing I want to talk about is the rusty nail myth. Rusty nails do not equate to tetanus. Shocker. Not every rusty nail comes with tetanus, especially as time has evolved and sanitation practices have gotten so much better. Things tend to be more clean, much more clean than they were back during World War I. When unfortunately, this bacterial infection was at its peak was during World War I. And the craziest part was during this time, the peaks of the infections and and the people getting these infections, it had nothing to do with children. It was all the adults. It was all more commonly people that were going to war. And yet we're vaccinating our two-month, four-month, six-month children, but We'll get into actually how many times we're going to get this vaccine shortly, but I want to keep going through tetanus. So going back to the myth of the rusty nails, if you get cut on metal, rusty or not, it does not automatically mean that tetanus bacteria is present. Again, if your wound bleeds, you are safe because it cannot survive on oxygenated environments. Tetanus is normally found actually in manure and dirt. In areas that are more farmlands with horses and cattle and cows, this is actually where tetanus is most present. You will not typically find it on a clean plumbing fixture, a furniture corner, a household object, anything that has a nail sticking out. You kind of get the idea. It's not as common that you're just going to step on a rusty nail and get tetanus. It doesn't happen that way. We are being taught to fear something that we don't need to fear. And even if there was a deep puncture wound that did not bleed, caused by an object that might have actually had tetanus bacteria on it, 
you literally cannot vaccinate against a bacterial infection after the exposure. You can't. The vaccine is not an instant tetanus killer. It would take actually weeks for your body to produce enough antibodies, providing the vaccine is even successful at all. So this myth behind the vaccine protecting you against a bacterial infection after getting your exposure, it, it, it can't happen. Your body needs time to build up antibodies, even if your body is able to build those antibodies, which we'll get into. I think another important thing to note is that if there were even serious concerns about tetanus exposure, the only thing that could help outside of allowing the wound to bleed if possible and cleaning the wound with soap, water, or hydrogen peroxide, you could also even clean it with colloidal silver. You could get the TIG shot. This is the tetanus immunoglobulin shot. And this shot is actually not even a vaccine. It is an antitoxin that will help with that tetanus toxin that could be present if there was that tetanus bacteria on that, whatever you cut your wound with. Getting the DTaP is not going to protect you from tetanus if you get tetanus. If you truly do get tetanus and you need a shot, they're not even going to give you the DTaP. They are going to suggest the TIG. Well, hopefully they will suggest the TIG. And if they don't ask for the TIG, that's uppercase T, lowercase I, uppercase G. And again, that's tetanus immunoglobulin shot, the antitoxin. And as I previously noted, which I'm going to continue to repeat because it's so important, there is no tetanus vaccine available in the United States. There is only the DTaP or the Tdap, which is a, again, three-in-one cocktail. You cannot get this by itself. The tetanus incidence and mortality declined greatly even before the widespread use of the vaccine. Something else that's very important to note is that the bacteria associated with tetanus is actually present virtually everywhere. However, when the human body does not present the bacteria a proper environment for growth, this constitutes a natural immunity to the tetanus bacteria. Statistically and studied, the only preventatives for tetanus are good general health and wound hygiene. There is no immunity to dirty wounds. Wound hygiene is essential. Take care of your wounds. When you get cut, don't ignore it. Clean it with soap and water. Flush it. Get out any debris, dirt, dead tissue, foreign bodies that are in this wound. Salt water is even beneficial to help to clean this wound. And like I said, even colloidal silver. Something else that is so important to note with tetanus is the studies of vitamin C. I'm going to include a bunch of different studies in the show notes, and they're definitely worth a watch, but, or a read, I should say, but the vitamin C, there's actually a lot of studies that have shown that even with rats and humans, that helps you survive tetanus. If you take it before you are present with the bacteria, when during or right after If you take vitamin C, your body can heal from tetanus so much better than if you don't take it. There are studies that prove that every single study that has been done where vitamin C was either taken before or 
after that bacteria of tetanus was present, the quickness to heal from tetanus dramatically increases with vitamin C usage. No better, do better. You don't need to fear something when there are treatments or whether are there where there are alternatives. But the sad part is they want you to fear these things. They want you to fear that you could get tetanus and die. What, what are the statistics of dying from tetanus? Before the vaccine rollout in 1947, the amount of people who died from tetanus is 472 people. Now, don't get me wrong. No death, no death is worth it. And every death is sad, but we need to look at these numbers here. 472 people died out of 147 million people died from tetanus before the vaccine was even rolled out. That is 0.0032%, another statistical zero percent odds of dying from tetanus. And yet we have to fear this vaccine. We have to fear this bacteria so much that we have to get vaccinated for tetanus or else you could potentially die. Today, there's about 30 cases a year of tetanus and tetanus kills about seven people a year, which again is, is no death is a good death, but I, I challenge you to go look at the statistics of people who die in car accidents or plane crashes or skydiving accidents. Are you going to live in a bubble? When you look at those statistics, because apparently when you look at these statistics and everyone has to run to a vaccine for a 0.0032% chance of dying before the vaccine, now take seven out of however many people we have today, do that math, look at those odds, and then look at the odds of dying from other things like getting struck by lightning or car accidents. And you, if you were fearful of tetanus, then you might want to live in a little bubble. Because that's kind of how ridiculous it sounds. Sanitation has saved lives across the world. And I truly do believe this is a huge reason why tetanus has declined so much over the years. The CDC is going to claim it's the vaccine. But I really, truly would beg to differ on this one. So we've covered diphtheria. We've covered tetanus. I want to talk about pertussis. Pertussis is probably the most favored reason why we get this vaccination is for pertussis. It's more common. We have seen so many more cases. It's more reality than diphtheria and tetanus. So pertussis is also known as whooping cough. Whooping cough is a serious lung infection that is caused by a bacteria. It is typically very contagious and causes coughing in most cases, a very extreme coughing fit where you just can't stop coughing. And whooping cough is, is like I shared, like diphtheria is is most severe with young infants under the, under the age of three months, because they have just such small airways. Statistics on pertussis currently, there's about 20,000 cases each year in the United States. Some cases, some years are worse, some years are better, but on average, we see about 20,000 cases each year. 
A lot of these cases are actually so mild though, that they aren't even reported. So we don't have a full accurate representation of how many people actually do get whooping cough, but this is a pretty good average and a good estimate with the numbers that are being reported. Of those 20,000 cases, we see in the United States about five to 10 deaths a year for whooping cough, aka pertussis. Whooping cough is generally harmful to older children and adults, but like I had shared, it can be harmful um, to infants as well as the elderly. Obviously, no loss is a good loss, but still five to 10 fatalities a year is still very, very, very low statistics according to the amount of people who do get whooping cough. So this is a treatable disease. This can be treated with antibiotics. So it is important if you do notice that your child has a cough, more commonly a very deep cough that tends to continue, um, go get them looked at by a doctor because the earlier that you can get this treated, the more likely that your child is to survive from whooping cough, which like I had shared still is a very high statistic, but it is easy to treat if you catch it soon enough. A lot of the deaths tends to happen from low oxygen. As you are having those coughing fits, it's hard to get that oxygen, especially with infants who have very little airways and very just a hard time breathing when these children have such small airways and then have a hard time breathing on top of the cough, then they get low oxygen. This is where some fatalities tend to occur. You can catch this just like a general cold, like I shared It is contagious, but it is treatable with antibiotics. So early diagnosis is key. If you have a severe cough, do not write it out. Go to the doctors, go get it looked at. And in the event that it is pertussis or whooping cough, they will be able to treat you with antibiotics. So that is a little bit about the disease in itself, but I want to kind of share about some controversies with pertussis. So you probably see all over the news, whooping cough outbreak, whooping cough outbreak. Oh, pertussis, it's back. You know, pertussis is spreading. The unvaccinated are spreading pertussis. There have been many studies actually that shows in the first discussion, there's actually been over three dozen studies that have confirmed that pertussis vaccine has actually caused an evolutionary adaptation of pertussis, which essentially means that the vaccine has caused this disease, or should I say this bacteria to mutate and to adapt over time and have different strains. And therefore the strains that we are vaccinating for might not actually be the strains that are present. Number two, the CDC has even admitted that this vaccine really doesn't even work anymore. And it's proof and the fact that they are asking children to get this vaccine so often, and then it becomes present in adults. So there's the DTAP, which is the diphtheria, tetanus, acellular pertussis, and then there's the Tdap. The Tdap is what is given to children seven years and older, as well as pregnant women. And the logic behind why they vaccinate pregnant women is that hoping that that vaccination will help to create those antibodies for the fetus and create a little bit of antibodies for this pertussis. So they are able to build antibodies before they're even born. 
But the fact that this is being vaccinated for so many times is showing that the CDC doesn't truly feel it works. And they have actually admitted that on many occasions. But what is so, I think, essential to know with this vaccine in specific is the pertussis in general in this vaccine, it's a silent carrier. So this, this is a silent carrier vaccine in the sense of this vaccine is not meant to stop the spread of pertussis. This vaccine is meant to weaken the symptoms or make no symptoms present. It is not meant to actually stop the bacteria from spreading and to stop transmission. There are studies on studies on studies, even in the vaccine insert that states that this vaccine will not stop the spread. And therefore it has been noted on many occasions that this vaccine has also actually caused pertussis to happen. If you look at the many different instances where whooping cough has spread, there has actually been an instance where 100% of the population in this outbreak were vaccinated for pertussis and yet pertussis outbroke in this population. 100% of those people were vaccinated yet there was an outbreak. That's a pure example of how this is a silent carrier. And this is a very specific vaccine that you need to be careful with if you are unvaccinated because these people are actually potentially spreading it. Because what happens is this disease, as you vaccinate for it, is actually developing partially inside the throat. So it is present in the body and can shed. So this in specific is known to actually be a shedding vaccine. The pertussis sheds to other people and can actually cause people to get pertussis. But I still want to report that again, of the people who have pertussis, five to 10 deaths a year. No death is a good death, but that's a very low statistic, especially according to the amount of cases. 20,000 cases is much higher than the cases that we see with diphtheria and tetanus. And yet we still have such a small fatality rate, which I believe is important to know when you are weighing the risks and the rewards and, and really looking into what you're really fearing. So I want to talk about this vaccine. So the vaccine, it's a triple antigen vaccine. So like I had shared many times, this is a cocktail vaccine. You cannot just say, I want the pertussis or I want the tetanus, or I'm going to hold off on those two today. I just want the diphtheria. No, you have to get all three in one. This is a very highly reactive vaccine. It has many known side effects and it has tend to cause a lot of reactions for the people who get this vaccine. You are given this actually five times by the time you're five years old. And the reason for the multiple doses is not for the diphtheria. It's not for the tetanus. It's for the pertussis portion alone. So you are getting all these other vaccinations in this cocktail when they're really only focused on the pertussis. Make that make sense to me. You get this vaccine at two months, four months, six months, 18 months, five years old, 12 years old, and then during pregnancy. And now they are actually encouraging every single pregnancy you have to get this vaccine. So essentially every baby that you carry, you should be getting this vaccine to protect that baby. So you could be getting this vaccine many, many, many times, especially if you are a woman. 
So how this vaccine is made. So this vaccine, once again, is a cocktail. It's a triple antigen vaccine and combine three different bacterias together to, in order to make this vaccine. So with the diphtheria and tetanus, so they actually take the diphtheria and the tetanus virus. They, these viruses secrete toxins. And if you've listened to the last few episodes, you've heard me talk about tetanus toxin and diphtheria toxin before. These bacterias release toxin. And this toxin is what is collected. And what happens with the creation of this vaccine is we take those diphtheria and tetanus toxins, we purify the toxins, we sterilize the toxins, and we change it and weaken it, which makes it a toxoid. And then what we, what we, I'm sitting there talking like I'm making it, what they do is they add formaldehyde to neutralize the toxin. So the, the toxin hopefully doesn't make you sick, but the formaldehyde in there, that's a known carcinogen. Like that's not going to make you sick. So, so they take, they take those two toxoids and then they grow pertussis germs separately in animal cells and essentially nourish these pertussis germs with cow blood and other animal nutrients to keep the germs alive. And then what they do is they take the pertussis toxin and add together more formaldehyde, just going to add some more formaldehyde, and then some pertussis proteins and add all of this together to aluminum. So we take the toxoids from the diphtheria and tetanus, as well as, you know, the whole nourishing state and the sterilizing and the formaldehydes. And they take the pertussis germs, which is nourished with cow blood and is, is grown and is added even more formaldehyde. And then we add aluminum to it. And this aluminum is, is an antigen. So it is in there to help it work better. The final solution ingredients, the main highlights of what is all in this vaccine are aluminum, as we shared, and formaldehyde. We have two phenylexanethanol. I'm uh, probably going to butcher all of these, but I really, it's not my day job to know how to pronounce these words, which I'm glad. <laughs> um, we have gluta, glutaarahelidehyde. We have dimethanol beta cyclodexin. We have bovine cow extract. This is what is again used to nourish the germs and leftover. It's left over in the final injection. So you are injecting cow blood and extracts from cows. We've got the milk protein derivatives that has helped to use and nourish those proteins found in the pertussis bacteria. We've got the polyosorbate 80, which is the emulsifier. And then we have the mediums. We have Mueller's growth mediums and the Mueller Miller medium. And this is what is used to grow the germs. In this vaccine, this vaccine contains about 850 micrograms of aluminum, which is 825 micrograms over what the EPA mandates as safe for an adult. And this isn't even taking into account the aluminum that's contained in other vaccines given at the same time. Go back to the last few episodes of all the different aluminum and all the different vaccines. Remind you, these are all given on the same day, but we're just going to focus on this one. So 850 micrograms of aluminum. That's 3,300% of the EPA safe 25 micrograms. 3,300% of the safe limit of aluminum is administered five times before your child is five years old. 
3,305 times is 16,500% above the EPA safe limit of aluminum that's injected into your body. That's bypassing the detoxing capabilities that our digestive system has and our body has. You bypass everything. So naturally, you can probably assume that this vaccine has side effects, and it does. There actually is more side effects from this vaccine than any other vaccine. To just cover what VAERS reports, so according to VAERS, there is 160,000 serious reactions reported to VAERS from the DTaP. 3,000 fatal reactions were reported to VAERS on DTaP. Vaccine Court has had 5,500 claims for serious reactions and 850 fatal claims and fatal reactions. Now, I just want to lay this out for you guys to see a real-life example of how we should be fearful and how we should be educated, okay? There is a total of 3,000 fatal reactions that are reported to VAERS. 850 of them specifically went to vaccine court and going to vaccine court is so hard. Let's take the statistics of dying from either. Let's combine all of them. All right. Pertussis has five to 10 annual deaths a year. Diphtheria has none statistically a year and tetanus has about seven. So let's just round up on everything. That's 17 deaths that are reported from all three of these combined annually a year. And yet, since this vaccine has come out, there have been 3,000 fatal reactions reported to VAERS, which reminds you, per Harvard, is only 1% of the actual reactions that are even reported. And 850 fatal reactions were brought to vaccine court over diseases that have a 17 death rate a year that have the odds of dying from combined 17 fatalities a year. No death is okay, but you guys look at these numbers, really, really break it down. What are you afraid of? I personally am more afraid of this vaccine because according to this vaccine and these statistics, this vaccine is worse for you than the actual bacteria and diseases themselves. This is why it's so important to have informed consent because we are told to fear, 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 fear. We step on a nail. We are going to get tetanus. But when you actually look at the numbers and when you actually do your research, when you actually have informed consent, you might think otherwise. Other side effects that are reported from this vaccine include severe nerve injuries. This actually is very known to cause encephalitis. In fact, one in 1,000 doses will cause encephalitis. Encephalitis is brain swelling. Believe it or not, the CDC used to have consent forms where it stated that one in 1,000 doses would result in encephalitis. Now, encephalitis can be healed, but in many cases it isn't, and it can result in more trauma and more injuries in the future. Weigh your risks, one in 1,000. Children can get encephalitis from a vaccine that doesn't even have that small of a range of possibilities of even dying from these viruses. There's also risk of seizures. Looking at the vaccine insert, 
I will include this in the show notes. I want to highlight a few things here. A couple things on the vaccine insert. So this is the vaccine. This is actually just the DTaP. I also want to add that there are two different vaccines that actually not only are the DTaP, but that also include other vaccines that are given on your two month, including polio and HIB. So you could even get more than just the two, but granted at the end of the day, if you are getting all your vaccines and your two-month checkup, you're getting these all at once, whether they're combined in one vaccine or they're separated. But this in specific is just the DTaP vaccine. This is um, the Deptacil. And a couple of things that I just, from knowing how to read inserts, find very intriguing. Number one is encephalopathy, include temperatures collapse or shock-like state, persistent insoluble crying, seizures with or without fever within three days, Golden-Bear syndromes, and more seizures. There's a lot of seizures listed on this vaccine insert. 5.5, I think is very important to highlight because this specifically states that the vaccination with Deptacil may not protect all individuals. So the vaccine insert straight up says that you might not be fully protected, which we do know that because we are learning that a lot of these cases are mutating and we are learning a little bit more about tetanus and how the vaccine does not fully protect you from tetanus. And it's just so fascinating to me that these are just right there for you to read on your vaccine inserts. Other side effects that have been reported following clinical studies is cardiac disorders, cyanosis. We have gastrointestinal disorders, including nausea and diarrhea, general disorders of administration site conditions, including local reactions, injection site pain, injection site rash, swelling, infections that can happen on the injection site, immune system disorders, including an allergic reaction, hypersensitivity, eczema, swelling of the face, partial seizures, screaming. Something I always have to add is that 13.1 states that Deptacil has not been evaluated for carcinogenic or mutagenic potential or impairment of fertility. So we don't know if this vaccine can cause cancer. We do know that it has cancer-causing ingredients in the vaccines, but there have yet to be studies done on if these actually do cause cancer or not, because it states it in every single vaccine insert, 13.1. Learning how to read an insert, friends, is, is a very important skill to have, and it's very hard to do, especially when you are given the piece of paper from your doctor that's so small. So if you are wondering how you can learn how to read a vaccine insert, I encourage you to actually look it up right online where you can blow it up a little bit better and just read through it. If you want to look for the clinical studies that they report. You want to look for the effectiveness of the vaccine. You want to look for 13.1, which is always the same in every single vaccine. You really just want to look for the side effects because what I notice in a lot of these vaccines is the side effects of the vaccine tend to be the side effects of the actual bacteria or disease you're vaccinating for. I mean, take the rotavirus, for example. All of these are so fascinating to me. And 
it's not fascinating to me in this, the sound that it excites me because I am so excited to learn about the corruption of vaccines and that we aren't told the truth, but it fascinates, it fascinates me that for so many years, we have still allowed this to happen. And it's still a conspiracy theory to believe that these vaccines might not be doing our bodies good. They actually might be doing our bodies more harm than good, but we can't talk about that. We can't ask questions. We just have to blindly trust. And it's a scary world. It's a scary world knowing that up until this point in this vaccine series, our children will have gotten every single one of these vaccines by the time they are two months old. They are not even walking. They are not even talking. They're probably not even fully into their senses yet. And yet we are injecting so much into their bodies for this fear of these diseases that we are taught to believe. And I want you guys to break through those fears. I'm not saying you can't fear things. Trust me, I fear things and I will still fear things, but there's an important healthy level of fear that allows you to not be blinded by that fear, to be able to think logically, to be able to ask questions and still have a sense of fear but be able to not let that fear blind you. So we are wrapping up our two month vaccines. Again, you also are getting the polio, but that is discussed at great length in episode two of our vaccine conversation series. So go back to that episode if you missed it. Next week, I'm going to take a little pause before going into our four-month vaccines, and I'm going to bring on a very special guest. I'm going to bring on someone who has a very powerful story, and I truly believe that, yes, we can get all this information and and feel that we're starting to get more informed, but when you actually hear of real-life situations of someone who is impacted from vaccines in their life and in their families, it makes you really see that these might not be what they are made out to be. So stay tuned next week while we're pausing before we go into our four-month checkup where we are going to have just such an incredible guest on the show to share her story and be so brave. So I'm so excited for you guys to listen to this episode next week. I hope you guys have a wonderful week and weekend, and I will see you next week.